Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're feeling happy and healthy. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you already know the drill. I choose three movies that perhaps aren't on your radar. I put them on your radar and then share my opinion on them along with some interview excerpts with the people who created the movies. Today, we'll start with Pariah. It's a gritty look at a dysfunctional family and a daughter's desire to be accepted. It's a heavy, timely story, but one of its stars wants you to know that it's not without its lighter moments. And Kim Wayman knows funny. She starred alongside her brothers Keenan, Ivory, and Damon on the legendary In Living Color television show and once played a character named Ms. Don't Want to Be Bothered in the movie Dance Flick. To me, this movie you know, really is very truthful, and that's what people respond to. And life, in life, in your darkest hours, sometimes something funny happens. Yeah. Have you ever been at a funeral? Yeah, I know. And something funny Someone's happens, and you find and yourself yeah. laughing, and grandma's in the coffin? You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just life. So to me, that was, you know, part of her brilliance of bringing, like, real truth yeah. to this to this story. You know, yes, there's humor. You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. Pariah is the story of Alike, a 17-year-old African-American woman who lives with her parents and younger sister in Brooklyn, New York. Alike is part of the LGBTQ community and eager to find a girlfriend. But at home, her lifestyle is the cause of great concern. But the young woman is determined to get through adolescence and move forward with grace, humor, and tenacity. Wayne's is a far cry from the mother that she plays in the film. Her character, Audrey, has rejected her daughter because of her sexuality, is alienated from her husband, and has no friends. Wayne's comes from a large, tight-knit family, so I asked her if putting her real-life experience aside to play someone who isn't family-oriented was difficult. You put Kim on ice someplace, and the work is to mold that, that script, to go through that script with, you know, a fine-tooth comb over and over again and, 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 and find Audrey, find Audrey, find how she sees the world, find out what her value system is, find out what her family dynamics were in her background, not what, Kim, what yeah. Kim's was or is or whatever. And so that, that's the work, you know, is to really, really, you know, um, and I, I did this by talking to Dee where, where there were holes, where there were things that I didn't understand stand or whatever, I would talk to Dee and, you know, um, get answers from her, or I would just create them based on um, the information that I did have, you know, so literally you, you put you somewhere else and you, you know, step into these shoes. Then I asked her if she can kick off those shoes at the end of the day and go back to her normal life. I personally can clock out at the end of the day and, and go back to being Kim. You know, when I'm there, I'm in it. You know, I'm in it. I'm in the story. I'm in Audrey. But when the day is done, I can go home and take that jacket off and put it aside and then put it back on, you know, the next day. I know a lot of actors can't do that and they have to, like, stay, you know, but I'm thankful that, that that's not my particular story. Pariah is a powerful depiction of budding sexuality that revels in presenting true-to-life characters in real and sometimes difficult situations without ever feeling exploited. People are really responding on a very emotional level. You know, we get people coming up to us and sharing their stories of how, you know, coming out, how difficult it was for them, or, you know, um, um, parents sharing stories about how it was very, very hard for them to accept this in their child, or, you know, so it's very exciting to us because, I mean, if people can walk away 
away from a film like this with um, you know more openness in their heart or more more compassion or a desire to you know to dialogue and to try to try to understand there's nothing formulaic about Pariah. It's a coming-of-age story that tells a specific story, but with a universal message. It's a beautiful story, and it's very, very universal. You know, I think people from cross-sections of life are really going to be able to relate to, you know, it's just a, a search for identity, a search to express your authentic self. Who hasn't, you know, longed for that? And that's the human journey. I mean, that's the human journey. And to be loved and accepted for who you are is something we all crave. Now let's have a look at Drive. The key piece of dialogue in Drive, the thriller starring Ryan Gosling, happens early on before any of the hardcore action begins. Bernie Rose, a shady character played by Albert Brooks, extends his hand to Gosling. The younger actor stares at the gesture of friendship for a moment before declining to shake. My hands are a little dirty, he says. So are mine, replies Rose. The quick conversation tells us that nobody in this movie is above boards and they don't care who knows it. Gosling is a man with no name, simply known as Driver, a movie stunt driver slash grease monkey by day and a getaway wheelman by night, befriending his neighbors Irene, that's played by Carrie Mulligan, and her young son Benicio, played by Caden Leos. He makes a deal to drive Getaway for some criminals to square a debt Irene's husband ran up and safeguard the mother and child. When the deal goes bad, he unwittingly becomes involved in a treacherous situation involving Irene's recently paroled husband, $1 million in cash, and some very angry mobsters. Drive is an art house thriller. It's stylized with lighting effects, lots of slow motion, and interesting camera angles that create a sense of unease that permeates every scene. For every instance of brutal violence, director Nicholas Reffin, he made movies like Valhalla Rising and Bronson up to that point, also escalates the movie's sense of heightened reality. Very long pauses punctuate most every exchange of dialogue, and how is it that no one ever seems to notice that the driver is drenched in blood as he walks through a very nice Chinese restaurant? Drive exists in his own world, and it is a fascinating place. Albert Brooks is cast against type as a mobster. We're used to seeing him in comedies like Modern Romance, Lost in America, Defending Your Life, or Broadcast News, so I asked him about taking on a role that was so far out of his wheelhouse. The same 12 people play all the roles, and even though you may like an actor, there's no surprise anymore. When someone, when Edward G. Robinson came on screen, you knew what he was going to do. So. The fact that Nicholas thought this was a good idea worked for everybody. I wanted to try something different. It doesn't let the audience know 100% what's going to happen just because they see me. As a matter of fact, they may even think something different. And it, that, it helps. It's always a good thing in movies if you can do that and pull it off. I had said to my agent for a long time, I, I would make an interesting villain. Because, you know, real villains in life are always, they're charming, weird, interesting people. They're not, they're not one-dimensional people at all. It's why they can suck so many people in. And so I had wanted this. And then I was minding my own business, and this all happened in like a 24-hour period. 
there's a this gentleman's in town, Mr. Riffin. He's in this house for two days. Here's this script. Would you go see him? And you know, I've tried to convince directors of parts that I really thought I could do over the years, and they had someone else totally different in mind, and it's really hard to do it that way, but if the director is leaning towards you, you're in good shape. Drive is long on silence and big on anti-heroes and is one of the most intriguing movies of its genre. I told Albert Brooks I had seen the film weeks before we did our interview and that I couldn't stop thinking about it. This is what he said happened after he saw it with his wife. But both my wife and I, like four days later, said, are you still thinking about this? Yeah. And I don't know why. I've been trying to figure out. I asked Nicholas. I, I think Nicholas was, because I, I said to him, I felt like I had a dream. <laughs> you know, the movie started and ended, and where did I go? <laughs> and he consciously talks about movies like that. Right. He says dreams are 94 minutes in length. Right. And he try, you know, he's got all these theories, but whatever it is, it sticks there. Sure That's does. for sure. I dreamt about it one night. I went online trying to see if I could hear the music again. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I just wanted to like, just revisit it just to see what I was still feeling. So that to me, I knew it was working on some level. And finally, who said disco sucks? The Secret Disco Revolution, a documentary by Jamie Kastner, says that the disco era was greatly misunderstood. The movie makes the case that disco was an accelerator for the liberation of gay people, of African American people, and women. He gets into the underside of the disco movement by talking to many of the era's biggest stars, including Gloria Gaynor, who sang I Will Survive, the village people, and who hasn't done the arm motions to YMCA on the dance floor. There's Robert Cool Bell from Cool and the Gang, and of course, Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band. No documentary on disco would be complete without him. On the film's festival release, I spoke with one of the grand dames of the disco era, Thelma Houston, who scored a number one hit in 1977 with her recording of Don't Leave Me This Way. I told her I thought the movie did a great job of recreating the era. Then I asked, what does she remember when she thinks back to those days? Here's Thelma Houston talking to me in a very busy restaurant. For me, it was, like I said, I had a hit record, you know, or, or prior to that, I was trying to get a record. Uh, I was on the Motown label and, and everybody was trying to get that elusive R&B smash hit. And I was recording and recording and recording and recording. I mean, recording was like a job. I was there almost, almost every day. Uh, in, in the studio trying to come up with something. And then someone, uh, Suzanne DePass, who was the A&R person at the time, came up and heard the song, Don't Leave Me This Way, and, um, and thought it would be a good dance song. Because the dance, you know, we were saying, well, maybe this is the way to go. And uh, we put the record out with uh, Hal Davis, who was not to be confused with Hal David. Yeah, who just passed away last week. Yeah, yeah. not that Hal yeah. David, but Hal Davis, who passed away some years ago. But he was one of the producers of the Jackson 5. Um, you know, the, there was what they, the, they called themselves a corporation. And yeah. so they were one of the producers. of. So he was a very good producer. And he came up with, um, you know, with the... The, the arrangement of it and um, and we you know went in and cut it and it was sounded great to us and we thought hey, we got it but then we had to take it to the chairman 
Mr. Gordy to have him listen to it and um, give his notes and you know whatever. And, uh, I, and, and you know, I, I had been that route many times before, and he said, no, we don't think this is good, we don't think this is no, we don't know. So I said, got something for him now. <laughs> and so because of my, because I was friendly um, with Suzanne and her assistant, they allowed me to go with him up to Barry's house. I, I didn't, That's nerve you know. wracking. Right, right. Yeah, no, yeah. because they thought, we were so sure of it. Right. You know, so I'm gonna be there, and I was like, I'm gonna be there. He's gonna say it's a hit, and it's gonna be woo, and I was all excited. Early in the morning, we went up there to the mansion up in Bel Air, and we were sitting, and they played a couple of some things, and then they yeah. saved mine to the end. So we played, we listened, we put put the song on, and and you know, I'm sitting there looking at him, you know, like okay, and uh, okay, and. And uh, when he finished hearing it, he says, mm, "No, I don't get it. I don't. I don't hear. I don't hear a hit." Wow! And so, talk about some disappointment. Yeah. I was so disappointed coming down off that hill out of Bel Air. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but the you know the the head of the NR, who was Suzanne DePass, felt very strongly about it, about the song, and she put it out anyway. Yeah. And. Uh, and you know, it was the hit. So um, for me, it was like um, it wasn't like the disco era. It was like I finally had a hit, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and it was received um, most prevalent yeah. in in that uh, right. in the dance in the clubs in the clubs. Of course, it did go on to be an R and B hit and yeah. a pop. But from the clubs, they were like on it right away. I, to me, I was just doing what I do. That was Thelma Houston. You can see her in The Secret Disco Revolution. You can find any of these movies wherever you legally rent or download movies. Well, that's it for this show. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, and we'll talk again soon.